Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Douglas Hanna is the COO of Grafana Labs, the company behind leading open source projects, Grafana and Loki, and the creator of the first open and composable observability platform. Prior to Grafana Labs, Douglas spent nearly four years at Zendesk, most recently as VP Operations at Zendesk. Before Zendesk, he was a founder and CEO of Help.com, a customer service software company, and the CEO of a small orange, the homegrown hosting company. A small orange, which Douglas joined in 2010, was acquired by Endurance International Group um, on the NASDAQ as EIGI in 2012. And Douglas continued running the company as SVP and brand CEO for nearly two years following the acquisition. Douglas earned his bachelor's degree in sociology from Duke University. So Douglas, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Cameron. It's funny just seeing Duke. I um, I met a guy 20 years or no, 30 years ago, pretty much 30 years ago this week. We bumped into each other in an airport. We ended up traveling together for seven months through Asia and through Australia. And for seven months, every single day, he wore a Duke Blue Devils baseball cap. And I was this Canadian kid. I didn't know who Duke was. And then I came back and they were just like all over the final four that year as well. And I was like, well, so I know you're alma mater finally. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, definitely most people know for the sports. Uh, I'm not a huge sports fan, but I did go to a, a number of games when I was there. And it's, uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's a culture for sure. Yeah. Well, that's part of the culture of the U.S. college system, too, is just getting engaged in that, that whole part of the system or part of life there. So, well, thank you for doing this. You've got a, a pretty interesting background, a couple spots that I want to touch on and then um, just kind of dive into Grafana. But before I kind of ask you about the past, why don't you just tell us briefly what Grafana is so we understand? Because even when I was reading it, I wasn't entirely sure what a composable observability platform is. Sure. Yeah. At the, the simplest level, uh, we help companies and organizations monitor their, their technical systems. It's usually what they're doing. Uh, Grafana is an open source dashboarding and visualization tool. Uh, so it makes graphs and charts and things like that for people. Uh, and it's used from like just individuals and consumers using it to monitor their home computers and, and beehives even to Fortune 500 companies that are usually using it to monitor their servers and other infrastructure and uh, that kind of all collectively enables observability around their systems and uh, being able to respond to and, and, and address any issues or outages or, or things that are running the way they're not supposed to. That, that's probably the, the layman's explanation. And uh, we've, we've been scaling that out to be a kind of broader set of offerings over the last couple of years, too. Interesting. That's, yeah, and you actually explained it quite easily because for me to understand it pretty pretty quickly, that was pretty simple. So, so what got you to leave Zendesk? I mean, you were at a, a pretty interesting company and you were in a pretty senior role there. You actually, as you mentioned earlier, um, the CEO of, of Zendesk was actually a prior guest on our, our podcast. But what, what had you leave Zendesk and go over to Grafana? Yeah, yeah. I, I had a great ride at Zendesk and it's a great company. Uh, we're, we're customers at Grafana. Uh, and I've hired a couple people from Zendesk to come over to Grafana since since I joined. Uh, really, a couple things. Like one, I joined Zendesk, and there are about 900 people. There are about 4,000 by the time I left. When a company gets 
to four or 5,000 people. It, it feels like a big company. Uh, and I've been spent most of my career in earlier stage companies. Uh, so that, that was definitely kind of a why think about something else. And then um, a friend of mine had, had joined, who worked at my previous startup, had joined Grafana a little, maybe six months before I did. And he was telling me about all the traction the company was having and doing these big deals with these really interesting companies and the open source project growing and kind of the team coming together. And it, it definitely intrigued me. So I started spending a bunch of time uh, with Raj Jat, who's our, our co-founder and CEO at Grafana and the broader team. And it seemed like there was a good fit. I'd wanted to be in the COO role personally and uh, kind of joining a company that when I joined Grafana, had about 70 people and was on this kind of venture backed high growth trajectory uh, was, was super interesting to me personally. And it was a chance to kind of learn about a new space. I, I barely knew what an observability platform was before uh, I worked here as well. And uh, it, it seemed like it was the, kind of the right mix of, of team and culture and, and space and what I wanted to do and what they needed. And it's been a little over a year now, about 14 months, and uh, the company has, has grown a ton. So it's been really exciting. Did you say you came in at seven zero or 17 people? Seven zero. I think I was the 72nd employee. Uh, and we're just about, we're a little over 200 now. I think we're about 210. God, it goes so fast, right? And how much have you raised? Uh, we've raised just over $75 million. So we did uh, about a $25 million Series A uh, late last year. And then about eight weeks ago now, uh, <laughs> startup time is like a, a morph of time for sure. Uh, we announced our Series B, which was $50 million. Very cool. And were you there for the 25 as well? I was. Yeah, that happened shortly after I joined. Interesting. Okay. So I want to, I want to dive in around that. And then I also want to understand like, what's it like leaving, um, you know, roles where you were a CEO, you know, clearly kind of in that entrepreneurial zone, leaving the CEO of a couple of companies and, and moving into a big corporate company like Zendesk. What was that transition like? Definitely a little bit of a learning and adjustment phase uh, to begin with, because uh, my hosting company was acquired by a fairly large company, like two or 3000 people. But I was really running it as a business unit, so I didn't have to deal a whole lot with corporate and kind of air quotes there. Uh, but Zendesk is like, at the time, was largely a single product company, one P&L, kind of one set of leaders uh, organized functionally. So it was definitely an adjustment. Uh, it took, I think, a little while to find my, my footing, but the, the leaders there were pretty patient with me. And then I, I think over time, kind of post that adjustment period, it really became the startup experience really became an advantage because my kind of pace of getting things done and my expectations of like, we can figure this out later uh, or we can kind of grow and scale as we're going uh, like that, that resonated really well in a company. Like, like no company is like intent, very few companies all, all correct. Like, or like, Oh, we don't actually want to get stuff done quickly. Like no one's like, I'd rather just go slower and, and we do less. Uh, and that certainly wasn't Zenda. So I, I felt like, I was able to leverage kind of the startup skill set and mentality at a big company to get things done quicker and uh, and in a way that that made sense. So it was uh, it was a good fit, I think, for me too. At, at Zendesk, my background was kind of in and around customer service management, and and that's clearly very closely related to what they do. So there's kind of a natural fit there too, and it was, mm. it was, a, it was a great experience because even like Zendesk, we grew about almost forty percent a year the, the the period I was there. Like that's still a lot of growth at, at on sure. a big number a like that. Um, and they, they had just crossed a billion dollars in revenue as I left. So that was a super exciting growth stage journey. 
Yeah, even in any size company, that 40% growth, you know, year over year is a pretty fast growth as well. So what do you think the difference is between the entrepreneurial CEO and the entrepreneurial COO? Can you describe the, the differences, behavioral traits or the types of roles that, that each typically play and then how you've maybe shifted into more of a COO role? Yeah, I found like the COO role appeals to me for a few reasons. Like one, the zero to one is not as exciting to me. I, I much prefer to like grow and scale. I, I like to take something that's kind of working and how do we make it better and do, mm. do more, uh, mm. which has definitely been the journey so far at Grafana. I think uh, certainly a founder CEO, they're usually in them zero to one. Like, like Rod spent many years with Grafana as like a bootstrap company, like him and his co-founders, like kind of eking it by until, until we started getting on the trajectory that, that we've been on the last couple of years. That kind of early stage is not as exciting to me. Uh, and I think that the CEO in addition obviously come up with the idea and, and recognizing the, the market potential vision, like they're, they're probably more long-term strategy focused. They're certainly thinking about a mix of technology, kind of product engineering, as well as go to market. Uh, my, my current role is pretty go-to-market focused. Uh, so they're like, I all frequently say there are pros and cons of different roles. So I would say as a COO, uh, you spend a lot of time thinking about uh, your, your relationship and rapport and kind of partnership with the CEO. Hopefully the CEOs are doing the same thing on the, on the other side of the table. Uh, but I would imagine it takes up a, a smaller percentage of their headspace overall, just because they have a lot of other stuff going on. And I think the, the role... Is, is probably in many, many cases, maybe a little bit more responsive or reactive to what the CEO wants to do and doesn't want to do, where they think they're driving value, where they, where they don't uh, think they're driving value. Whereas I, I think the CEO, you're kind of leading that dance for the most part, uh, which, is, which is their prerogative and is great. But um, I, I'd say the CEO role tends to kind of lead and then the COO role is ideally molded around that. And there's like, differences and nuances to this, of course, but I would say that's a more typical pattern. It's interesting. I like that, that um, the examples you gave there as well. You talked about the partnership with the COO and the partnership with the CEO, and you said you, you hope the CEO is as focused on it as the COO is. I think the COO is definitely more focused on it. How do you build the, focus, the, the relationship with your CEO? What are the kinds of things that you do to keep that relationship strong? And then also, what are the things that you do to stay on the same page with their vision for the organization and where they want the company to go? Yeah, it's not, uh, it, it's not a particularly like insightful answer, but like one way is we spent a lot of time together. Uh, we have, I was actually just on a call with him right before we, we got on a call here. Uh, and, and we spend, we're, we're probably in a, a meeting or two a day overlapping. And, and then we, we definitely spend some time one-on-one -on -one together. I want to make sure my team has exposure to him and, and to some of the things he's working on and thinking about as well. Uh, but it's really a, like let's stay kind of posted on just day-to-day -day things that are happening to the extent they're relevant, like making sure he has the latest forecast, he's participating in our QBRs, things like that, you know, where we're at with hiring, but also like that we're talking about kind of strategic things, like when do we want to raise money? How are we thinking about any M&A we're doing? What's our product vision or, or kind of our go-to-market strategy? Uh, it's, it's how do you get some of the tactical things out of the way so you can focus on the strategic uh, and that, that's how, how I, I try and stay on the same page. And I, I think we've done a pretty good job at communicating openly to, to enable that uh, and to, to make that possible. And then 
in terms of like how we got there, it took some time. Like uh, Raj and I did not really know each other kind of before the hiring process. We didn't have a pre-existing relationship. Uh, and we, we clearly spent a bunch of time together as part of that. Uh, and then like just a lot of like over communication in the very early part. And so we built some trust in our core and like some things that probably a year ago would have been a conversation between Raj and I are now like he trusts me to do it or it's not really like something we need to spend any time on. Right. Uh, but I think it takes kind of patience and trust and, uh, and empathy from, from both parties uh, to get to that part. Uh, Cause it, it definitely, uh, I think it's tough, especially for a founder CEO to kind of let go of some things and, and delegate like hopefully substantial responsibility to a COO. Um, and I think it's tough for a COO who's probably been used to working with a different type of leader or boss, like every, every person's kind of unique. Um, yeah. and, and, and get used to that. Like, uh, my old boss, Tom, uh, who's my boss at Zendus and the CEO there, uh, very different than Raj. So I had to get used to two very different styles and, and personalities as well. Um, but I think I've ultimately gotten to a really good place. What do you think it was that Raj saw in you to bring you in as the COO instead of promoting somebody from within? I think, there was, there was someone on the team who had kind of somewhat similar functional responsibility to, to what I have today. Uh, and he's still on our team. He's on our, our customer success function today. Uh, I think that person was more of a kind of an early stage builder, less of a scaler. So um, kind of the clearest candidate internally had, had not really um, had basically opted out of the role, uh, which made it kind of a low, low drama situation. He's oh, he did opt close. out of it. So he was, he didn't have the title, but he, he kind of had, uh, his direct reports were very similar to my direct reports when I joined, like, mm-hmm. if you think about it that way. Um, but I think he was interested in like, how do we, how do we grow the company and let's bring in people that have the experience and, and, uh, and some of the expertise to do that. So that answers the kind of internal, ex- the internal versus external piece. And then I think in terms of why me, it was, I, I kind of had an atypical background. Um, a lot of kind of revenue focused COOs are, are like salespeople. Uh, I'm not really a salesperson. I'm more of an operations person. Uh, and I, I think that appealed to Raj. I, mm. I had more, I spent more time in my career on the post-sale side than the kind of pre-sale side, which was interesting to us as we thought about driving kind of customer success and really high quality support. Uh, and then kind of the, the operating kind of cadence and methods of the company when you think about goal setting, OKRs, kind of planning. That was an area that I had a lot of experience in for my time at Zendesk, and, and that was also really interesting. So that that was the fit. I guess I, I, I didn't make the evaluation on behalf of the company, so maybe that's a better question for, uh, for, for our founder, CEO. But in our conversations, that's kind of what, what came across as, as what was most appealing. How long did it take you when you came in as COO to... Um to kind of get up to speed and get your feet wet and feel like, okay, you fit in and you knew the business and you could start running. Was it like two weeks, two months, 10 months? I think it was probably like lunchtime. <laughs> definitely. It was not that fast. It, it was probably <laughs> like, I, I think it took a good six months for me to get a, a firm kind of handle on our space or direction or strategy, build enough of a rapport with Raj. Like I, I felt like I was doing stuff and hiring people and things like that within within a couple of weeks and like the, the list of things I did was, was pretty long in a pretty short amount of time, but to really feel comfortable and like, okay, I, I got this. I could, I, I can pitch this to a candidate. I, I can have intelligent input on kind of what we're doing from a product strategy direction. I can hold my own with the customer. Like that took, that took several months. And I think for people that are making a switch to a new industry, uh, that, that can be, um, 
I, I think that's that's pretty reasonable. I, yeah. I would be like as I've as I've hired new leaders from other spaces, I'm like it's probably going to take you like four to eight months, probably an average of like six months to really get a handle on kind of all that's going on and kind of what our space is like because it's pretty different. It's interesting because it we I think we often underestimate how long it's really going to take people. Like I, I tend to be able to take you two or three months to get up to speed, but the reality is there's no way. Like it's just it's just longer than that. How long did it take for your team to feel comfortable with you? Do you think there was a point where they're like, okay, Doug's got this? Good question uh, for them, probably. Uh, my my view is I, I think I've done one. I've done a lot of team building since I joined, so a lot of our functions, like if you look at my direct reports. Uh, today, I've hired most of them. Uh, they, they, the roles didn't exist in the company, really. Like, we didn't have a global sales leader. Um, we didn't have a marketing leader. Uh, I hired someone, like, we didn't have any ops people. So a lot of the folks on my direct team today I've hired, uh, and several of which I've worked with before. But for the existing people, I, I honestly think they're really great at kind of giving me the benefit of the doubt, being excited I met them during the hiring process. So I, I think they they were on board pretty quickly, but it took... Um, I, I think it takes time to build trust and rapport with uh, with a new manager and and uh, probably a couple of months, I would guess, to really feel like, okay, I get Doug and how he works and what he's trying to do. Yeah, it's funny. I, I talked to a COO recently and he he hands all of his new employees the operating manual for himself. I have something actually very similar to that. Do that you? I wrote out. Yeah, I, I wrote something. Uh, I think it's called Working with Doug. And I, I share it with all my direct reports when I when I get start when they get started, and it's pretty straightforward. It covers like communication style, how how I like to use one on ones, what to expect from like QBRs and OKRs and things like that. And it, it feels uh, I, I get feedback that people think it's useful. It's just kind of nice to see it all written out and, and save yourselves a couple of weeks or, or months of like kind of fumbling through those things. Totally. I, I had a, a new team member start today, so I just read through it about a week ago. And, and updated it a little bit, but it stayed pretty consistent actually as, as the, my team has grown. Um, Where did yeah, you get I, the I, idea for that? Because it, it's you're only the second person I've ever heard doing it. Interesting. I definitely read about it somewhere. And I, I think the one that really prompted me to write it was the COO of Stripe. I, like I, I think I heard her on a podcast saying that, that she has something like that. And maybe even she published a template of it. I think it's it Claire is. Johnson. It, it, was, it was her who mentioned it in a book. Like I think it was like Startup Handbook or something. And that's where Matt had read about it. You're right. That's, that was where that's consistent with what I'd heard as well. Cool. So a, Claire, Claire should get the credit. Yeah, I mean, but it's a really, it's a, podcast? it's a really great tool. I'd love to have her on the podcast. It, um, yeah, I think it's a really brilliant tool. And I think it's, it's, it's not only vulnerable, I think it's actually just really smart because the reality is they're going to get to know you anyway. You may as well fast forward the whole discussion, right? Like, look, this is when I'm an asshole. This is when I'm a good guy. This is what pisses me off. This is what doesn't. You may as well just throw it all on the line and go, okay, now, you, now you're up to speed. Yeah, and I saw a couple of team members of mine kind of create similar ones that they've shared with their teams as well, especially like our sales leader, who in terms of like just number of people has our largest team uh, in my organization. Uh, like, I, I think it's helpful because if you're a, a skip level uh, manager or more of some of these people, um, it helps them get a sense of, oh, who's the senior leader and, and what's his style or totally. what, is she, what is he or she about? So you said something that I thought was interesting as well, which was that you try to give your team exposure to Raj, to the CEO. How, how do you try to give them exposure? Do you set up the skip level meetings or do you just bring him into meetings with them? Or how do you do that? Yeah, it's both. So, so Raj definitely does skip levels. Uh, and I do skip levels with kind of my team members directs as well uh, on a pretty regular basis. So that, that's part of our, our culture. 
uh, trying to be open and, and transparent, which are amongst kind of key values of ours. Uh, and then, yeah, we, we try and I try and bring in folks uh, from my team to meetings. So instead of just kind of being the single source of, of, of information, I, I want Raj to kind of get to know my team members and what their, their opinions are and their thoughts are. And uh, I, I generally think I've, I've hired good people that have a lot of experience and things to add. And um, like we're, we're talking, we're in meetings talking about, okay, where should we invest hiring or how do we think about planning for a subsequent quarter? And if, if that's a kind of Raj level discussion, I'm happy to bring in others to talk about it. And same thing with bringing team members of mine in uh, to our senior leadership team, which is generally like our CEOs directs. Like I want them to have exposure to that group, hear their questions, hear their concerns and for that group, which is more cross-functional uh, to get to know them as well. Interesting. You, you mentioned, you kind of talked about how long it took you to get up to speed. I didn't ask you, how, how did you get up to speed coming into the company? I mean, you, you came in um, almost like having to change the tire on the vehicle as you still keep driving. Like when you go from 70 to 200 in the last year and you had to figure it out as you were going, how did you get up to speed? Yeah. Uh, so I did one-on-ones with everybody on my team. Uh, so that was, I think about 20 people at the time. Uh, I did, I spent met a bunch of our customers. That's important to me. So I asked to join some sales calls and post sales kind of check-ins and things like that. I think that's one of the best ways that a leader can get to know the business. Uh, I had this folder on my desktop called things I don't understand where I would uh, say like I'd come across a deck or a document or something and be like, I have no idea what this is talking about, or I'm not sure what this piece of this is. And I would go through it and about twice a week for maybe six or eight weeks, I had basically a tutoring session with uh, one of our product and engineering leaders, uh, this guy, Dan, who was very patient with me and explained all these things to me, which was immensely helpful. Uh, and then I had a couple of people on my team that had a lot of this expertise as well. Uh, but Dan, Dan, Dan is a peer of mine uh, and spent a bunch of time with me very patiently as we were just trying to kind of educate me on what <laughs> an open and composable observability platform means and our ecosystem and all these other pieces of, uh, of what we do. And, and that, was, that was immensely helpful. And I was just coaching uh, a new hire on my team to do the same. Uh, she actually came from Zendesk as well. So we're, we kind of started at the same place I did. I'm like, have a list of the things that you don't get and then make sure you find somebody that will go over them all with you and can help teach you. And uh, it will feel very academic, but it's really useful. And I would, I would, I think that's a good thing for anybody that's in a new space and whether it's like, I don't understand it technically, like I don't understand what this means or just like, Hey, explain to me why the company does this thing that like a certain way or not this other way. Like, I think that's a productive conversation. We try to assign every new hire, including at like the executive level, a buddy effectively, and who's a, a peer ideally, and who can walk them through like some of these, like, is this how this is normally done? Or is this what I should ex expect? Because those can be less comfortable conversations with your manager, uh, or with someone on your team. Uh, so so we, we found the buddy concept works really well, even even at senior leadership level. Yeah, I like the vulnerability of just coming in and going, I don't know how this works and getting somebody else to explain it versus pretending that you got it all together too. Yeah, I, I felt I was not hired for my technical expertise in the space. So uh, I was pretty open about that. It was not hard to look at my resume and tell that I was not an observability expert. Uh, I've always felt like I've been fairly technical in companies I've worked in. Uh, but this was by far kind of the hardest kind of leap for me technically. Like coming into Zendesk with a background in customer service, it was not that difficult. Uh, coming into the space, having never been a developer, 
uh, or our assistant man was, was tough. I, I wouldn't have guessed that either. So, I mean, it would have been impossible for me. Um, talk about the, the lessons learned to the, the two rounds of funding. I mean, your series A at 25 million, series B at 50. What did you guys, or what did you learn in going through those two rounds? Yeah, I think the, obviously the last year and change has been a very strange one um, in, in the world. Uh, I think Grafana has been extremely fortunate in that company was bootstrapped for a number of years, decided to raise and had tremendous interest. And then our, our B round was an inside round. We, we had basically the same investor pool uh, and never really like kind of went out to market with, with that. Uh, and that, that's like, that, that's not a position that, that all companies are in. It's a position that I think uh, a number of companies and kind of this weirdly hot VC market are in right now. Uh, but for us, we I think we were super fortunate that we were able to be pretty selective on, on who we wanted to work with and do so in a way that we thought made sense for our business and what we were trying to achieve. I think probably main lesson learned is, especially if you have that kind of luxury of choice, is the kind of spend some spend as much time as you can getting to know your invest your potential investors and understanding like what value can they bring uh, beyond obviously just the the money uh, to to your business like for us I would say the most value added things our investors can do on a day to day basis are uh, bring us introduce us to customers and talent those are the things that we generally kind of have unlimited need for mm. uh, and and when we have potential investors reach out to us. We, we ask for help in those areas and we kind of have a, a fairly um, compact uh, list of asks that we send to them and we, we get their feedback on. But uh, I think it's, think about how they can help you. VCs tend to be very helpful when, when they're pitching you. They, they may not always be as helpful after that, but we've had, we've had good luck with ours and uh, we, we can think of a number of people on, on our team kind of across the company that we've hired as a result of VC introductions and a number of customers that we've either kind of made contact with initially or kind of gotten further in the organization with as a result of investor help. And that it's actually can be really meaningful, especially in like a B2B kind of enterprise mm-hmm. business like we are. Um, if you're a B2C photo sharing app, which I don't think there's very many of those getting started anymore. Uh, but if you are one, that's maybe less useful on the customer side, but definitely on the talent side. And uh, if you're if you're working with a really reputable investor, I think they can bring a lot of clout to that. Interesting. Anything that you w- you would do differently? Anything like in the that process that you were like, wow, we kind of screwed that one up or didn't do as well there as we could have? I think as, as you're thinking about fundraising, getting kind of all your ducks in a row administratively is helpful. Like thinking about like all your employee contracts and agreements, all your financials, like all the things that are going to come up in the VC diligence process. Like if you're like, okay, we're going to raise funding early next year. And here we are in kind of mid October, like start doing that now. And it will save you a lot of time and stress when you're like, when there's a hopefully many million dollar check on the other side of that process. Uh, that, that was in our A round. That was kind of painful. In our B round, it was really easy because we learned some lessons. Uh, but I, I think for companies that haven't done it before, making sure all that stuff is organized and it's pretty easy to find like what a standard PC diligence list looks like. Uh, and that, that will be well worth it and just eliminate some stress early on. That's interesting. The, um, what about the team building component? You talked about that you were pretty good at building teams and building your team. What, what are the kinds of things that you did that, that helped facilitate that? Yeah, I, I've done done a lot of hiring uh, since I started here. I, I feel like uh, I color code all my external like talent interviews as, as purple on my calendar. And if you scroll back, I have a lot of purple in my calendar, which is great. And I, I recommend that to people just to get a sense of like 
I have a different color for customer and a different color for in, for hiring. And it gives you a great kind of snapshot of how you're spending your time in a given week. And we're, we're two weeks away from the end of our quarter. So the, the kind of light peach color, which is my customer color, has gotten much denser on my calendar as we get closer to end of quarter. Uh, but but that's, that's totally expected. Uh, I think on the team building side, having kind of a a vision for what you want your team to end up like when uh, whatever pick three, six, nine, 12 months down the road uh, and where you might want to be opportunistic. Cause when I'm talking to whether it's our investors or recruiters or other talent uh, I think that's really valuable of just saying, Hey, well, we're not looking for a BD person today, but I think we're looking for someone down the road and just being opportunistic. I think that's really valuable. Is it opportunistic that if you trip over the right person, you might hire them early? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, or like we might flex a role up or down depending on who we find. Like we might have a, we think it's a director level role, but if I find someone really great and they're more of a VP, like uh, part of being in a, as a growing startup is you tend to have that flexibility and that's really important. Uh, another thing I really like to do in hiring is I like to meet a bunch of people to calibrate um, and I'll tell whether I'm working with a search firm or I'm, I'm kind of leading a search myself. I'll say, introduce me to a bunch of people, some that you think we're, we're not going to be able to get some that would be like below the role, some that you think are right, the right fit. Um, and I want to calibrate and I want to, to get a sense of who's in the market now, what good looks like, et cetera. Um, and as part of that, I'll talk to some people that like, I'll probably never be able to hire. Uh, and then I talk to some people that would probably be like maybe a little bit below what we would need just to, just to be able to compare. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think that that's an approach that scales across executive hiring down to like IC level hiring. Totally. Like if, if you just get a sense of who's in the market. Um, and then I had some good agencies that I worked with um, and were that, that were able to kind of just plug in quickly that I have relationships with to be able to fill roles. And I think that was, that was really useful too. And are you, are you guys remote or are you location based? We're remote first. So um, I'm based in San Francisco. I'm currently in, in Palm Springs right now for a little bit of a change of scenery, but uh, San Francisco based, uh, Raj is based in New York, but is currently in Singapore. Uh, we're, we're all over the place. So, uh, I think we're in 31 or 32 countries at the moment. Easy. So the whole transition during COVID was easy for you guys. Cause you already were remote. Yeah. I used to travel a bunch, like a lot. Um, and I have for probably the last six or seven years of my career, but, uh, or more, but, uh, so I, I haven't been on a plane in a long time, uh, I think eight months or so, which for someone who's done a couple hundred thousand miles a year for several years in a row, this has been a big change. But, mm-hmm. uh, and we, we used to like, like just practically like get together for some leadership team offsites, like once a quarter and it's been a week kind of locked in a room together. And there's a lot of like, oh, I wish we were locked in a room for four hour, five hours on this. Um, and it would be helpful for thinking about things like strategy or pricing or, um, how we think about messaging and some of these other things that like are hard to resolve in a 30 or 60 minute zoom. So how are you doing your remote offsites and, and have you, have you guys started to, to put systems in place for that? Yeah, we do. Um, we do remote offsites at this point. I think pretty much everyone in the company has taken part in a couple. Uh, our biggest challenge is we have quite a bit of time zone coverage from like us West coast through Europe about probably about half of our employees are in Europe today. Uh, so we will have, usually from like 7 a.m. ish to 11 a.m. ish Pacific time, which is early morning to kind of late middle-ish evening for our European people. Uh, we'll, we'll get everyone together for four or five hours on a Zoom, try and leverage breakout rooms if we can. Certainly structure it like you would any other offsite, but 
it's remote with some breaks. Uh, and we, we found, we've tried a couple different things. Like I had one guy on my team who did an, an offsite over two weeks. They had an hour a day for two weeks. Uh, they're not going to do that again. He, he said, um, to, we've done like three or four days of like four hour sessions. It seems like the sweet spot is like three days, maybe five, four or five days of like three ish hour sessions. That's worked pretty yeah. well for us given our time zone coverage. Are there any time zones or, or regions of the world that are just tougher to work with? Not because the people there, but because the time zones make it tough. Like, is it, is it hard to work with people that are based in Bali versus Europe, et cetera? So we are, we have very few people in APAC today. Uh, we're, we're actually just talking about now expanding into APAC much more aggressively and we're going to start dealing with this. And then we're going to have to get into like alternating meetings and how do we think about all hands, especially while, 95% of our employee base is in Europe and North America, like making the Asia team feel included. It's going to be hard. Um, that's something like that's part of getting larger as a company and, and getting more distributed. Uh, and, and we're looking forward to that and kind of forcing ourselves along that way. So I, I, it's, it's going to be an adjustment, but it's something we got to do. Yeah, I know we just signed a member for the COO Alliance who's from Kenya and runs a team of about 400 over there. And for him, he's like, it's no big deal. Whenever I deal with, you know, it's like they're okay with it. It's just the rest of us kind of feel bad that, you know, he's getting up at 2 a.m. for his three-hour call with us. But he's like, I don't care. They're, yeah, they just yeah. find it normal. Tell me tell me about your skip level meetings and, and how you run those. There's, there's, it seems to be a bit of a science and an art. And so I think some people do them well and some people don't. I get a sense that you do them well. So I do skip levels with, no, a, a decent number of, of kind of the skip levels that I have. Not not everyone consistently. It's something I do that I, that I really enjoy and I find really useful is I try to meet every new employee in my organization about 90 days, 60 to 90 days after they start. I used to kind of be on the rotation like on, on day one or week one. And what I found is like employees in, in week one, they don't, they don't know anything. Like it, it's, a, it's a pleasant chat, but like we're, we're not actually able to talk about like what are you seeing from customers? What are you seeing kind of, what was your onboarding process like? What's your manager like? Like yeah. those sorts of questions are much more productive when they actually know what's going on. Uh, so strong recommendation if, if you're a, a COO, like don't, don't meet people in the first week unless it's just kind of pleasantries or a group meeting or something, but actually have that one-on-one -on -one kind of 60 or 90 days in. And then you've also potentially gotten some data points on them that you can, you can ask about or poke into. Uh, for me, when I do skip levels, I like to ask about how, kind of, what are their priorities? Um, are they getting kind of the support and help that they need, not only from their manager, but from me or maybe the rest of the go-to-market or, or company's leadership team? And uh, what are they seeing, depending on their role? Like if they're, they're sales leaders, who I do skip levels with our, our sales leaders, like are, what are you seeing with, with customers? What deals are you worried about? Things like that. I, I spend a bunch of time with customers in my role, but I wish I could spend more. And I, I'm really interested in what are people that talk to customers every day feel mm -hmm. like those customers are experiencing and feeling. Like I always ask our support people and our account managers, like what's the sentiment of customers? Like do they seem generally happy? Are they kind of upset? Uh, like who's upset about what? Like, like it's all, it's anecdotal. And as like a very like operational data-driven person, it, it's, it's kind of a little, uh, a little silly that I'm asking about these things, but uh, I, I find it's really it's really interesting in that we have all this data. We have a bunch of information on how customers use our product, how they're transacting with us, et cetera. 
but I, I often learn more from talking to a salesperson about how their last deal went. Uh, and, and that like, you have to kind of triangulate different things that you hear, of course, but it, it's, it can be really useful. So for any of our customer facing folks, uh, I'm always interested in talking about that too. Yeah, I think they do. They definitely put some color on some of the data. Anything that you would never do in a skip level meeting, anything that you like, oh, should I shouldn't have done that or that bit us in the ass or bit them in the ass? I think the most risky thing in skip levels, uh, and these are conversations I, I have uh, kind of across my team is like, especially as like a COO or, or some other like senior leader is, is assigning work to the people you're doing skip levels with. Uh, because I, I find that they, it, it's really easy for that person to over index on what their skip level manager asked them to do. And if you, aren't careful one about kind of how you, you frame what you're asking them to do or how, how to think about it or two, kind of what, what the potential outcome is. Uh, it can get, it can get dangerous. And then you might get a question from their manager, your, your direct report is like, did you ask so-and-so to do this? And I'd be like, no, I didn't. I, I try to be really <laughs> clear about that. Uh, and I, I think that that's a really important nuance of, of skip level. So I, I, I try really hard that no one hangs up the phone with any homework besides maybe send me something that they've already done or something like that. I, I don't, I don't want to do that. And I'll, I'll usually be very intentional of like, Oh, talk to, uh, if you're their manager, talk to Cameron about that and, and see what he thinks or, or something like that. I, I want to put the ball in, in the court between the employee and, and the, the leader uh, and not kind of directly kind of get involved in that. Yeah, I think it's also another subtlety is, is to receive the information they're sharing with us by saying, you know, that's interesting or amazing or thanks for telling me about that, but not to say, oh, wow, we have to change that or, oh, yeah, you're right, we should fix that because we don't know the rest of the story and sometimes their manager does. I got, mm -hmm. I got bit in the ass a couple of times where I took their feedback as kind of the entire view of the whole, of the whole issue and it really wasn't. There was more, more there and one side, and, and, but because I said, yes, we should fix it, now I'm stuck and their boss is kind of stuck in between me and I kind of screwed that one up over the time a couple times. Yeah, that's true of I think any sort of hierarchical communication. And if you're a manager talking to your employee and, and they're they're talking to you about something that's not necessarily like in your control and you're like, oh yeah, I agree. And then you go talk to your boss and right. they're like, no, then then you look stupid. Um and, and you've you've broken some trust between your your employees. So the like I hear you and thank you for sharing is very different from I'm going to do something about this. Yeah, it's subtle, but it's so different. How about um for yourself? Last question I've got for you is what or two two more questions, but what is um something you've really had to work on for your own skills as a CEO over the years? Something that I, I've been focused on for a while as a leader is really thinking of kind of the empathetic side of leadership. I am uh like I mentioned, I'm, I'm pretty data-driven, pretty operational. I'm a, like, let's move on as soon as we've, we've hit our goal and, like, not, not a whole lot of stop and smell the roses necessarily. So I, I've, I've tried to be really thoughtful about how am I thanking people kind of authentically uh, for the work that they're doing, congratulating them on, on what they're being successful with. Uh, I think providing feedback has not really been a, a, a challenge of mine, but more so like how am I doing it where, where they feel kind of like appreciated and that I'm trying to help them grow maybe versus criticizing. Uh, I think those, those soft skills can, can be tough. And uh, I, I think there's this kind of amplification effect of, of being a senior leader at a company where kind of anything you say, even if it's offhand, can be like interpreted with like 10x the intensity um, by especially a lower level person. 
Um, and, and you have to be really careful about that. And that, that's been something I've tried to be aware of in, in all leadership roles I've been in. But it, it's, a, it's a continued just like for someone who really values like direct and open communication, it's a hold on. I need to think about how to phrase this in a way where the person will ultimately end up coming like coming away from the conversation feeling great and not not kind of beat up or, or criticized and we can still get to a positive outcome for everybody. So I think that's probably something everybody can work on, but it's definitely something I spend time on. Well, yeah, they definitely do take our titles much more seriously than we do as well, I think at times. So um, Doug Hanna, if you were to give yourself some advice when you were, let's say, 21, 22 years old, finishing at Duke and getting ready to head off in your career, what advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today, but you maybe didn't know back then? I think probably the the advice I would I would give any any person that that's coming out of school or something uh, is like take on an opportunity that will give you kind of the flexibility to to stretch beyond where you think you could be or or what you could accomplish. Like working at a high growth startup is perfect for that. And that the company is growing, you're going to have lots of opportunities if if you're you're doing a good job, those opportunities will come to you. You don't have to like actively manage your career nearly as much as you would um, at like a Google or something like that. Um, like I think people that are, are coming out of really competitive uh, schools like like Duke or Stanford or whatever and, and that go join Google or, or Facebook, which are both great companies and, and both very comfortable places to work. Um, I think they're, they're missing out on uh, a lot of learning potential and uh, you can always go back to those companies, uh, but it actually like working at Google for a decade can be a, a downside to some people that are hiring in startups because uh, it's a very unique place and, and they've been very successful, but being successful there doesn't necessarily translate to being successful at a high growth company. It's amazing. Doug Hanna, the COO from Grafana Labs. Thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command. Brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.